Um, and, and one of the things that I keep on um, with white folks in particular is that the system is not broken, mm-hmm. right? The system is functioning as it was designed. Like, again, what we talked about in the beginning, right? about everything coming out of slavery. Yes. Our modern capitalist system comes out of slavery. Our modern prison system comes out of slavery. Our modern po- modern police comes out of slavery. Right. And so the system is functioning to profit off of black bodies. And I say black bodies and not black people uh-huh. because the system does not imagine black people. New, yes. Right? And that and that is something that as white folks who want to pretend to give a damn like that can't be okay. Right? Right. Ooh. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Naked Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. Welcome back to the podcast. So um, in the time that we've been gone, um, we have lost two more Black lives to state-sanctioned violence. And um, like I shared in the little bonus episode a couple weeks ago, I really don't feel comfortable talking about blue light and health stuff and other things um, in the mist or when we're in the height of um, grieving collectively. Um, And here in Rochester, New York, where Daniel Prude was murdered by four police officers, um, we are still in the height of grieving thanks to the incredible organizing of um, Free the People Rock and BLM Rochester and multiple other organizations. Um, The city has been on the ground protesting night, every single night since um, last Wednesday when it became, the autopsy became public that um, Daniel Prude was in fact killed by police. And so here in Rochester, we are all mourning. We are processing, we're angry, um, and a lot of people are on the streets showing up and making demands. Um, So I just take a moment to honor that work 
and um, I am actually going to put in the show notes ways that you can be supporting the family of Daniel Prude, the work of the organizers on the streets, um, and how you can demand justice for Daniel Prude and his family and begin to change and shift the model of justice in this city. So please do what you can and then do more because I truly believe our souls depend on that. Okay, so let's get in to this episode. I am very excited to share this with you. Um, It is with my dear friend, family mentor, um, Liz Wiltsey, who is a coach, a mentor, and a facilitator around getting your needs met at work from the perspective of trauma-informed lens, an anti-racist lens, and an abolitionist lens. Essentially, her work is all about how do you get your needs met? How do you get your voice heard while in the context of a workplace? And how for leaders to create anti-capitalist, anti-oppressive workplaces? Um, Wilty has been in the game working for anti-racism for, I think, two decades now. And she is one of my teachers and one of my biggest loves. And in this episode, we talk about um, Liz's time in New York City during 9-11 and the stories that were being told and her interest in stories and her time um, at NYU. Uh, We talk about white folks and white supremacy, white supremacy in education, slavery in modern times, the hidden history um, that a lot of us aren't privy to and that we have to go and find, um, white guilt and white fragility, extending care, which is huge. Um, Her work in working with solidarity with the movement for Black Lives truly how to be an ally and what that looks like, the modern day abolitionist movement, queerness and imagination. And then we talk about her work with getting our needs met. So if you're interested in getting involved with Liz's work, getting in contact with her, you can um, find her work at four, the number four needs dot work or on Instagram at at Wiltsy. Both of those are linked in the show notes and feel free to reach out and to get connected with her incredible work. Um, This is a great episode. It is super timely with what is happening on a grand scale right now. We actually recorded this episode back in May, June. Um, So it's been a little while, but It's still so, so relevant. Um, And there are so many gems in here. Um, We really get into it and really go at it. And it was just such a pleasure to be able to have this conversation live for you all because we're always having these conversations kind of behind the scenes. So I hope you 
enjoy. I hope you take notes. I hope after this you really have um, some action items that you can go and do to um, make this world a more just place or a juster place. Enjoy the episode. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm super happy you're here. It's funny because the listeners don't know, but we've done this before. So this is a, <laughs> this is a retake. Um, <laughs> not that the first conversation wasn't fabulous. It was, but lots of things have changed in the world and we wanted to talk about the things that have changed. Um, so I'm going to start off with just like, I know what made you you, but like, I want the listeners to really know who you are, what made you you. Yeah. Um, so the th- things it's always tricky to be like what made you right (laughs) Um, and you're like well today or (laughs) forever Um, and so this is always a hard question Um, but the thing that's probably made one of the most lasting impacts on me is my parents divorce Um, I was really really young Um, before I turned three. They were both remarried before I turned four. Um, And that's pretty common. Um, Not necessarily that age, but people getting divorced is pretty common at this moment. Um, And the way it played into the rest of my life was that as I was a teenager, um, I was being asked to respond to things that happened to me that I didn't remember. Mm-hmm. And so um, what that looked like was having parents that had stories um, and I had no way to like fact check. I had no way <laughs> to know um, because I couldn't remember, right? You can't remember that part of your life. Right. Um, not really and not in any way that matters. Right. Um, and yet it had um, this really big impact on like, how I saw myself, how I saw my relationships to my family. And so when I went to college at NYU, um, I started digging into like children of divorce and what impacted them and things like that. Um, But it was always from this sort of frame of how do I know my own story when people are narrating it to me and I can't remember, like how do I find what is true, quote unquote, knowing that like, you may never actually get there. So um, so that was a big piece. And then, of course, my sophomore year at NYU was 9-11. Um, and so I was in the middle of New York when that happened. And I remember um, being told by the media what we were supposed to, what we were feeling, and feeling that really specific disconnect that was like, you're telling me uh, that what I'm feeling is angry really a lot of what I'm feeling is angry. Um, and, uh, and that didn't resonate for me. That didn't feel true for me. There were a lot of really big feelings, um, but I wouldn't have called them angry. And I wouldn't have said what I wanted was like retribution and to go to war and to kill more people. Um, and so those two things like dovetailed together at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, And then a dear, dear, dear friend of mine in the winter of 2001 gave me The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, um, which I would say like sent me down this direction because 
James Baldwin says, we're trapped. We white folks are trapped in a history we do not understand. And Mm -hmm. so when I read that, I was like, oh, that's it. That's like, that's true for me because I'd been searching for what, how to, how to make sense of truth, um, quote unquote, bunny ears for audio only later, um, how to make sense of truth outside of remembering your actual story. And so that connection between my sort of personal journey into what um, later became a discussion of, I mean, in my life, a discussion of race in the United States um, those two felt really connected to me in a way that was like, how do we as a society tell our stories in ways that impact our life? And so um, it just, that part always made sense to me that there would be something that we were trapped in that we didn't understand. Right, right. So yeah, so those are, that's the sort of shortest version. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so this kind of concept of being trapped in our stories and trying to understand kind of the white story, the space of like the wider narrative in the world, how did that get you from NYU to LA working with, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter? Yeah. I know, Um, but tell the people. (laughs) (laughs) Martise is like these are the stories I want you to get to so we're gonna get to them Um, and we've got it it's great Um, sorry I'm trying to do the tea thing but here we go Um, so that moment um, NYU James Baldwin Mm -hmm. um, I was studying kind of personal psychology stuff that shifted very much into sociology shifted into both race relations in the U.S. and colonialism in Africa. Um, uh, Because those were the places to me where um, the story was messing us up the most, right? The story of, the story was creating power um, and continues to create power. Um, And one of the best books um, that I have read uh, is by a Haitian scholar named uh, Michael Rolf Trio. Um, although he is French or Haitian French, and so it's probably Michel. Um, but I've only ever seen it in writing. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and he wrote a book called Power, uh, called Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really talks about the ways that if we can't imagine something to be true, then we won't write about it and it won't become history. And so we see that um, across where knowledge is um, codified and where it's not and what that sort of hierarchy looks like. Um, And he does a lot of discussion of the Haitian Revolution um, because the Haitian Revolution happened at the same time as the American Revolution. And so you had these thinkers that were talking about egalitarian, you know, egality, free, freedom, equality, etc. And yet they couldn't imagine a black person was a whole person. Mm, yeah. And so what did that look like 
in that moment and how did it impact what was being written about in the history. Um, and so that was my sort of course of study. And then as I got out of NYU, um, I didn't know about the sort of white anti-racist organizing that was happening in the world. Um, it certainly wasn't happening on the scale that it's happening now, but it's been happening. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that whiteness just screws us in big, big ways, right? It says, um, there aren't other white folks doing this work. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. aren't, and there are, and there have been. Um, and so as I got out of NYU, um, I moved to a very conservative part of the country. Um, and then later I ended up being your high school dean of students, right? And sure so did. my work, um, my work was on a very personal level, which was, um, how do I do what I can from where I sit, um, to make your lives better, the lives of um, black folks in a predominantly white school. Um, and what that looked like for me was making sure that none of you felt like you were crazy. Mm. Um, and I think, and um, I didn't know then what I know now um, about how I could have pushed harder uh, in yeah. that moment. Um, and how I could have impacted the whole of the policy of the school. I didn't know those things. Yeah. Um, and now as I talk to educator friends of mine, I'm like, we have to be talking about these things. We have to be talking about black women being, um, disciplined at way higher rates than right. white women across. And, and, and I say women because I taught high school. So I consider, I tend to think of you as adults, even though right. really you're not, mm -hmm. um, but women, children, right. Being, mm -hmm. being disciplined at just much, much higher rates. And we need to push much harder on that. Um, I think that's an interesting function. One of the things I think you and I talk about often is how white supremacy affects white folks. Like we mm -hmm. kind of think of it as like just a, ill wrong against black folks and people of color but um in reality it puts white people in a box as well and i think one of those things is this idea that you have to kind of stay in this you have to stay in the lines do mm -hmm. not stand up do not question the culture mm -hmm. and so like it's interesting to hear you say like at that moment I didn't think that I could do more or I didn't even know how to do more. And I think that in and of itself is a function of white supremacy. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's not that I thought I couldn't do more. It's that I didn't know what I needed to be doing. Right. right. Which is why, you know, I say to people now, I'm like, you've got to be, you've got to be talking about this stuff on the regular. It's not just that you read, you know, black people in your classes, although you need to be reading black people in your classes, exactly. right? Yes. That's true. Um, but, you know, even things about the way we think about scholarship, mm -hmm. folks on scholarship or who are getting financial aid mm -hmm. in any way. Um, and that's a like cross class 
thing. There are certainly white folks on scholarship. Yeah. Um, but there is a move, particularly in private schools, to say we want more diversity so we will right. pay for it, um, right. which is essentially not in and of itself a bad thing. Right. Um, but if when we pay for it, then we say, oh, well, we bought you. Like, what sort of nonsense is that that says you actually don't get to have an opinion because we paid for you to be here? But, you know, it's those kinds of things that, have, that are so deeply, deeply ingrained in the way that white supremacy and capitalism yes. <laughs> get you, yeah. yes. right? Yes. That says, I paid for it so you can't have an opinion. Right. And like we see it, we'll see it, it happens in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the reasons that then people don't feel that they can speak up because right. they also don't want to lose their job, their education, their whatever, mm-hmm. right? Whatever thing money has traded hands for. We right. see it on the internet. You know, Sonia Renee Taylor um, did a IG Live that will say this way better than I ever, <laughs> ever, ever could. So I suggest people go and look at it. Um, but that notion of I Venmoed you money, black woman on the internet. Right. So I can ask you whatever questions I want. Right. And you don't get to have an opinion or feel like it's that same. I've bought you. I've, I've bought, bought you. I've, I've bought, bought you. Time. I've bought your personhood. Yes. I've bought you. I mean, and that's in a lot of ways what we've seen trickled down through the years through slavery and then capitalism that says like, we're all robots who are just here to do the thing for the system. It's crazy to see all the ways that it manifests in our relationships and how it relates to people. It's wild. Well, and, and I want to sort of challenge other white folks to be like, if there is a thing that you think relates to slavery, (laughs) then we need to rethink that thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, like if, if that's where it comes from, like our notions of productivity yeah. come from slavery and, and slave masters with checklists. Yes. Like we need to kick really hard against those things. And that's, you know, our modern system was built on slavery, right? So, like, that's basically everything we deal with Mm -hmm. needs needs looking at, right? Needs dealing with. Um, But, yeah, I think think that piece, I think in schools, we just forget. We forget where those pieces are because it's not – Schools don't think of themselves as businesses mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, and so I think it's easier to say, oh, well, I have black students. I teach black um, texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like at, at a school level, how many black teachers do you have? Right. Right. Like I, I know. On one hand. Right. The amount that I've had in my entire lifetime. Right. So. And how many of those teachers were teaching you, like, black history, basically? Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it, in a lot of ways, it goes back to 
what you said in the beginning about like the stories that are told to us and how we craft those stories. And unfortunately, those stories really do begin in the classroom. Um, I just think about even in, and we're now going on a tangent of education, but it's cool that like the amount of things that I learned that I didn't learn in my AP US history class at my very prestigious private school that I then went to school, went to college, was in classes about black feminism and black history. And I was like, wait, what? I was supposed to be in advanced placement. I was supposed to have the deeper knowledge of things. And yet still it was completely omitted. So then what does that do for our stories? Not only mine as a black person, but white folks as well, who their entire education is centered around a like white supremacist framework. So then what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to get out of that? I think it's an interesting, as black folks, I'm not saying we should be like really interrogating whiteness and white supremacy and how it deals with you. But I think it's an interesting notion to like really kind of think about how it fucks all of us. Mm -hmm. Some of us more than others, but you know, it fucks all of us. <laughs> well, and, and, it, and that's the thing as white folks, you know, there's, I have two kinds of people in my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have the, um, although lots of people are moving in a way that I have never seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are folks who, um, there are white folks who have been doing the work. There are white folks who just realized racism is a problem. Um, and then there are white folks who don't want to admit racism is a problem. Mm. Right. Is, and I have, I have all of them in my life. I'm all it's of crazy them in my though life. to think that there's still people out in the world that are like, this is not a problem. What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, and, and however, I do think this moment, like I said, I've said it to you before. I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it, um, is a crack in the universe. Yeah. We have a crack in the universe because I can tell you that I've been having these conversations for about 20, almost 20 years right. and in one way or another, in the way I knew how. And, um, and there is movement even among even among the people who don't want to admit that like white supremacy culture is either a thing or a problem, right. um, there's still a willingness to like hear some of it in a way that there just never has been before, right. like ever ever has been before. Um, but you know our our history books mess us up to no end, right? Because we're taught, and, and when you think about this in the context of settler colonialism, it gets mm -hmm. even more messed up, <laughs> I think. Because if you, can, if you can grapple with the idea of slavery, yeah. and, and that slavery built our country, and that when um, black folks who are descendants of slaves are calling for reparations, mm -hmm. like that um is warranted yes right like yes. more than warranted um and then but people still have trouble getting into the settler colonial project meaning like when we came here as white folks from europe mm -hmm. um there were people here <laughs> right there were indigenous folks who were here and we systematically 
killed them and stole their land. Right. Right. And so like there's a, and none of that is taught in history. We get taught Pocahontas and, and a Thanksgiving <laughs> meal where like the, the indigenous folks brought the corn. Right, like right, how right. dangerous is that mm. as something that you're learning from when you're like five in a production. Right. Right. So that like how much of, how much of history do we not even like remember? Yeah. Or know or is being taught or right. look into or. Right. It's hard. I mean, it's hard because like as, POCs, you grow up as being the history. Like your the history is embodied in you. So there's almost in some ways like there's a learning from the text, but there's a deep knowing within our bodies. And I think in the same way, there is a knowing in the white body of the colonialism, of the white supremacy, of the the terror that was given and I think that conversation of like white guilt and white fragility is interesting because then there's an embodiment of both sides you know Mm -hmm. there really there really is Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's um at the end of the day white folks know that our history is one of like murder and genocide Mm-hmm. And that's where, to me, a lot of the fear comes from that mm-hmm. says, you know, oh, my God, <laughs> if we stop policing Black folks, they might actually come for us in a way that is warranted, right? And I don't believe that is true. Right. Um, I have seen things on the internet that are like, <laughs> you're lucky we're just asking for this and not retribution. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't hear black folks calling for retribution. Um, and I'm, you know, I work in solidarity with black lives matter and the movement for black lives. So I feel pretty solid in like what the call really is Mm -hmm. like knowing what Mm -hmm. the call is. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there is, when you talk about embodied fear, I think that's the real fear and we have to grapple with that we white folks when I say we I mean white folks yes um because uh I don't think I do myself any favors by trying to say like I'm different than everybody else Mm -hmm. um and so um because like this journey is a thing that is like forever Yeah. yeah and a sort of constant what are we doing today to make that crack in the universe wider, what are we doing, right? Yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Because I find in today's day and age, in the social media age, the microwave age, as my mom used to say, like, it's, um, it's like we want everything right here, right now. And I'm seeing a lot of specifically white folks who are like, what's the list that I can check off? What's the thing that I can do to make the change right now? And... I'm interested to know you who have done this work for 20 years, who is in the spaces, like you working directly with white people for black lives. Like what does it, what can we tell our white brothers and sisters who are like, I want to do something right now, like make it happen now. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so some of my favorite people who are talking about this um, are obviously black women, mm-hmm. um, black women, black um, non-binary folks. Um, Desiree Attaway, who runs the Attaway Group, um, posted something the other day that um, was talking about how, as white folks, we talk to one another mm-hmm. and how um, there is this um, – because there's there was a wave of white folks that also thought racism started when Trump got elected. Mm. And, and that, and so though, so these white folks are doing work now Uh and there's some white folks who are now sort of acting like they've always been here Mm -hmm. and the new white folks who just figured out that racism is a thing with George (laughs) Floyd, um, there's like a high horse. Mm. There's like a high horse among those things. Mm-hmm. And and Desiree Attaway is like, you are not treating each other with care. Like mm. I am seeing criticism and call outs from white folks to other white folks that are, um, you know, she frames it. She's like, it, it feels mean. Mm. It feels mean spirited. Um, and so one of the biggest pieces for me of abolition, which we can get into more of that, yes, is about transformative justice, yeah. which says, how do we care for harm? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that is deep, deep, deep accountability. And yes. that accountability is about behavior and holding people with care who aren't you know, that we are trying um, to move in one way or another. And I I have this, like, I'm great at holding space for white people I don't know. I do that on the regular. Mm-hmm. I get short as I'll get out with my family, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and that's my, that is something that I am working on. Right. I am having different conversations that hold space differently and allow more movement in a way now than I ever have. But so like that piece of the sort of white folks judging the other white folks for where they are. um, And that's not to say like, cause obviously there's a lot of like white folks get your folks. Right. Which is very, very true, but we need to be aware of how we are doing that. Um, because there is a pull for white folks um, to separate ourselves, right? right. And to right. be like, I'm not like you. Right, right. And the facts are, is that we all are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are all entrenched in this deeply white supremacist culture and we have to make different choices on the regular. Yeah. Um, and so, and some of those choices are about how we interact with the other white folks. Mm -hmm. And again, I am not in any way saying um, how black folks should interact with white folks. (laughs) Black folks can interact with white folks however they please or not at all, right? Um, But white folks to one another, how do we, you know, how do we hold ourselves accountable 
um, and Mia Mingus, who is on Instagram um, and other places, obviously Mia Mingus exists <laughs> in the world. It's like a whole ass person uh, who um, does a lot of work around disability justice <clears throat> and does a lot of work around accountability out of the Bay Area mm-hmm. um, and has some really, really, really great resources. Um, so to me, one of the biggest things that white folks can be doing right now is digging into what accountability looks like. I love that. That I feel like that's a thing that I haven't seen said very clearly in this moment. And for the folks that are listening, when we keep saying this moment, we're like a couple weeks out of the death of George Floyd. We are in the moment of figuring out if COVID still exists or not. We're in this moment. It does, spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> It does. <laughs> we are in this moment of where it really does feel like the earth is opening in a lot of ways. Um, but the piece about accountability and some framework of that, I know it exists. I know Black people are saying it. I know that it's out in the world. But in my small universe, I haven't seen a whole lot about that. Um, and that that's a very tangible space of being like, learn how to say, mm, I don't know how to navigate. Mm, I know I fucked up. Mm, what do, how do I change? How do I shift for myself? Um, and I think that's a huge piece around the transformative justice. I want to take a quick pivot a little bit um, to kind of, can you talk about specifically what working in solidarity with Black Lives Matter looks like, what it means for those that don't know what uh, white people for Black Lives is. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, So um, in Los Angeles, um, there is an organization called Aware LA, which is the um, Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere. This is my hand figuring out how we spell, right? That's what that is. Since you're videoing this shenanigan. Um, (laughs) And AWARE started about 17 years ago. Um, And what it was, was there was actually a, like a summer camp um, that involved folks who are now leaders of Black Lives Matter, who are leaders of different organizations. um, And they were all, like teenagers, like teenagers, young adults, mm-hmm. um, doing stuff together. And, um, out of some of that, um, discussion, uh, the white folks started to create a space and then also were like, we need to be in accountability, um, with, uh, our black and brown counterparts right we can't we can't we know that people of color can't be the only folks doing this work Mm -hmm. and we know we can't be doing it in isolation because that just ends badly Mm -hmm. um and so that organization started about 17 years almost 17 years ago we're in our 17th uh journey around the sun (laughs) and um and then of course once that organization kind of got off the ground Uh, the POC-led orgs here in Los Angeles were like, please, white folks, go over there. (laughs) Please, please go over there. (laughs) And what what AWARE has always been is a space for white folks to grapple with um, 
you know, white supremacy culture and how it harms us um, in space with other white people um, for two reasons. One, actually, there's like eight reasons, but two that I like to think of. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that white folks need to see other white folks doing this work. Yeah. Need to be in conversation um, and need to be able to like work stuff out. But second, not in multiracial spaces. Like don't go bleed all over the multiracial spaces, basically, right? right? right, right. Like don't be working out your mess there. Because right. also if um, if white folks get involved in multiracial spaces without doing their own work to undermine white supremacy culture, what happens is white folks walking in thinking they know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and thinking that they should be leading this party, right? Because we're told by all of society that that is true. Yes. Yeah. And so if we're not constantly doing that internal work, then, um, we, we just, we behave badly, we behave <laughs> badly is what it is. Um, and so aware is the 17 year old organization, um, about 12, 10 or 12 years ago, um, aware and other groups nationally, um, got together and formed surge, which is showing up for racial justice, which is mm-hmm. the organization, um, now nationally, which whose job it is to organize the white folks mm. to be in this fight. So there are chapters all over the place. Um, and then about six years ago, white people for black lives became the activist arm of aware because aware is very much internal processy, what have you important, important. Mm. And then, but, um, when Black Lives Matter began uh, as a as a specific mm-hmm. organization, right? Um, white People for Black Lives um, was founded then as well. So that what that means is that the white folks can keep processing their mess. And show up in coalition and in solidarity um, with Black Lives Matter and other POC-led groups um, across Los Angeles. Um, And I'm saying POC-led on purpose Mm -hmm. um, because there are um, organizations that are not just Black-led. I'm not using it as a a catch-all. Right. Um, And... um, And so then that solidarity means... We follow the direction of Black-led, POC-led organizations and bring, you know, the crew of white folks who can make calls, raise money, be it, be it protests. Um, it just lets us um, continue to organize the white folks and be able to be talking about how white supremacy culture harms white people. Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. Um, And so, so that's what that is. I love that. I'd be interested to know the kind of like, here's our code of ethics. Like this is how we be in solidarity. And I think one piece that I hear you say is that like you 
for lack of a better term, you do what you're told. Like, you're like, I'm not here to take this over. I'm not here to tell you how to run your movement. I'm here to be a help. I'm here to be a protection. I'm here to be, to stand with. Mm-hmm. And doing that looks like being like, hey, how can I best serve you? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a really beautiful um it's a beautiful act of service. It's a beautiful, beautiful act of service. Well, and necessary. I, and necessary, right? I think there's also pieces where when I first um, started doing this work in this way, which will be three years in September, my like, I call it my aware-aversary in <laughs> September, right? Um, where, um, because I moved to Los Angeles in 2017. Right. For folks who don't know that about me. Um, uh, one of the things that I didn't quite realize was the idea that you can be working in solidarity. You can be following the lead of Black-led, trans-led, queer-led organizations and have an opinion. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. because we we did work on... Um, the reform LA jails campaign, which became measure R, which passed with 70% of the vote here in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, And, and there was a, and some of the discussion of how we reach white folks was on us to figure that piece out. Mm. And so there is the piece there. That's like white folks are our responsibility. Yes, 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 yes. Right? It's not um and and that can fall in to a larger strategy. Um and so it's not just um blindly. It's not it's not blindly. Um but it is but it is saying like actually <laughs> the the black women the black femmes, the black trans folks have been doing this way longer and have a much clearer vision of what needs to happen. And so plugging into that makes a hell of a lot more sense than being like, I'm going to tell you how something needs to get done. Um, And I think there is this I'm seeing, you know, I see a vibe on the internet right now that is white folks who are like, I'm going to start my own protest. Ah, yes. And it's like, please don't do that. Please just go and be in solidarity (laughs) with your local, you know, Black Lives Matter chapter. Right. They've been doing this longer. Yes. Yes. And and you're just going to you're either going to be ineffective or get yourself hurt and other people hurt. Right. Possibly right. both. Or just on, time. from like a visual standpoint, again, taking over a space that isn't yours to necessarily be taking over. Right. Um, which I think is an important, an important piece of that. What does an abolitionist white folk, white person look like? What does an abolitionist white person? I know I'm throwing this to you. Yeah, I did totally. not give you this. I did totally. not give you this early for this. Um, so let's let's explain abolition for folks who maybe don't know. Yeah. Um. 
So, and I will say before I start, Mm -hmm. um, I learned everything I know about the modern abolitionist movement um, from Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. um, and and folks associated there. Um, I, Patrice Cullors has done um, a lot of talking about it in ways that um, have been really resonant for me. Richie Reseda here, um, who uh, co-founded an organization called Initiate Justice um, with um, Taina Vargas Edmond um, as well. Um, the two of them co-founded it. She is the executive director, um, and they do fantastic work around decarceration um, mm-hmm. and moving moving needles in ways that they can. So I should just say they are the folks that I have learned from. Um, so abolition in the, um, most basic sense is about, um, abolishing the police and prison state here in the United, well, globally, but Mm -hmm. we're, um, we'll start here. (laughs) We'll start here. We'll start in the United States. Right. Um, and, and, so that's that's the sort of basic idea when we're saying abolition, we are saying get rid of police and prisons. Um, but underneath that, what it is saying is there are different ways to care for human beings. Ah, yes. And that human beings should not be disposable and that they should not um, be cast aside. That if we spent the amount of money we spend policing and jailing communities on literally anything else. I mean, this isn't true. This isn't whatever, but like we could spend it on ice cream and it would be a better use of funds, right? Than those two pieces. Um, But what people are talking about is, you know, ways for communities to be accountable, ways for needs to get met. Yes. um, Because, you know, my work is about getting our needs met Um, which I also learned in an abolitionist context um, because white supremacist capitalism says we should not have needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It literally says we are a means of production. We are here to put, you know, this thing in this hole and make Jeff Bezos a trillion dollars. Right. Um, (laughs) Or the other five people who own, who have half the world's wealth. Right. Um, And it says that people don't need to be cared for, that poverty is the fault of an individual and not a system. And abolition says, if we put our money there, the problem it's, and it's not a like snap your fingers, the problems go away. Miriam Kaba, who also um, is an abolitionist, as well, um, has done a lot, a lot, a lot of writing, thinking, working, um, is a leading voice, uh, around transformative justice. Um, she says punishment is easy. Accountability is hard. Oh yeah. And when you think about that, when you dig on that, right, the idea, the sort of deal with the devil that white folks made Mm -hmm. was, here we'll have a police force. We'll give you whatever you want. And because of that, we won't have to deal with our problems. Mm, mm -hmm. And so we basically like 
abdicated responsibility. So like, think about the dumb things that white folks call the cops for. Ooh, like mental health stuff. Mental, well, not even, I'm not even talking about mental health stuff. I'm talking about like, you know, Amy Cooper, who didn't oh. want to be, who didn't want to be told to put her dog on a leash. Um, I'm talking about people who, who will call the cops because someone is barbecuing oh. or because someone's playing their music too loud mm-hmm. or, you know, the like, I'm talking about like dumb, 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 dumb yeah, stuff. all the way down. Not it. that there is a hierarchy of things we should call the police for, right. um, but we can sort of agree, but there is this, <laughs> there is this <laughs> section of stuff that's like, we've outsourced the solving of that problem. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and... And so again, I say, dig into accountability. Yeah. What does accountability look like when we can't, when we've decided that like just calling someone else to take someone away. Right. To disappear another human. Right. Right. Like, isn't the move, isn't the thing to do. I love that piece about like we're outsourcing our problem because thinking about the mental health thing, thinking about the levels of poverty that a lot of black and brown people, white people too, but specifically black and brown people are incarcerated for. When white folks in this dominant culture has created a problem of poverty, capitalism, white supremacy has created this problem of defunding resources for mental health, defunding education, defunding uh, public programs that would help the reasons why people are going to jail. So it's like, even it's as dumb as fuck as the Amy Cooper stuff, all the way to we have created this problem and then we don't want to address the root of the problem, we just want to throw people away. Mm -hmm. It's a very like out of sight, out of mind, idea right that's like oh well well we don't have well it's it's like um so i moved to new york city in 2000 um and giuliani was mayor in 2000 um i got no love for giuliani um and giuliani gets credit for cleaning up the streets what did he do in new york city he threw the homeless folks in jail right right that's not cleaning up the streets that's jailing folks who don't have homes right right and and that's not you know and so and it's easier for white folks to say i'm just going to put you in jail and not think about you than to say the society we built isn't working for folks um and and one of the things that i keep pushing on um with white folks in particular is that The system is not broken, Mm -hmm. right? The system is functioning as it was designed. Like, again, what we talked about in the beginning. Right. About everything coming out of slavery. Yes. Our modern capitalist system comes out of slavery. Our modern prison system comes out of slavery. Our modern modern police comes out of slavery. Right. And so the system is functioning to profit off of black bodies. 
And I say black bodies and not black people uh-huh. because the system does not imagine black people. New, yes. Right? And that, and that is something that as white folks who want to pretend to give a damn, like that can't be okay. Right. Right? Right. right. Oof. Almost got chills. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't even have words. I'm, I'm completely actually speechless. Because it's just, we are told, we are sold a bill of lies. Like we are just sold so many lies. Believing that the system in which we grew up, all of us, was built off of justice. And maybe it was built off of somebody's notion of justice. But when we're really thinking about building personhood and honoring personhood, this system in which we are trying to survive in so many ways is not honoring those things. And so it's interesting too, because it's like, not only do we have to defund the police, right? Like we have to defund or we have to remove ourselves from the belief in the system doing us good. Mm -hmm. Because so many of us are like, well, you know, I think about in this this era of COVID, so many was like, well, I can't wait to go back to normal. I can't wait to things go back. And it's like, fuck what was here. Mm -hmm. That never was serving us. It's what got us here in the first place. Mm So let's take this moment to imagine a new future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what I love about abolition is that it's literally saying, this is what honoring ourselves, honoring our relationships, honoring humans really looks like. This is what it looks like to be in quote unquote, right relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful notion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say, you know, there's a there's folks who will say, well, the the founding fathers. And I want to say, to hell with the founding fathers, <laughs> right? Like bunch of cis white dudes making choices all by themselves, and and this is what we get, right? And like even if you go back, the in the in the Bill of Rights, in the Constitution. Right. Black folk are three-fifths a person. Right. So fuck them founding fathers. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, right. And so, like, that notion of, like, well, we've got to stay true to what they intended. No, we don't. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it, they, they built it to protect capital and land-owning folks. This country's always been built to protect capital. Police protect capital and property Mm. more than anything else. And that's why the discussion right now when we're talking about rebellion, which let's be clear, we are talking about rebellion. We are not talking about riots. We're not even really talking about protests, although we can. Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but like the language we use matters right white folks talking to us um and that we're talking about rebellion when 
And when white folks want to say, oh, but destroying property. Mm, Fuck the property. No, right? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> we, we have got to put a premium on human life. Ah, yes. Yes. Not property. Property can be rebuilt if it should. Mm. Pro- right? Like insurance exists, mm-hmm. exists mm-hmm. for a reason to protect property, lest we forget. And and I will also say, COVID and a govern and a fumbled government response has done more to lose people money. Oh yes, than someone than something getting burned or something get a getting a brick through a window. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like. We've we've been for months, restaurants have been for months, there are places in Los Angeles that will never reopen. And that's because they also haven't been supported. Right. right. You know, the, the government could have said to the banks, you need to put a, put a freeze on all payments. Right. No one owes you any money. Right. The banks all got bailed out in 2008. We already paid for them, right? We already paid for them. They got bailed out in 2008. They could have done that and businesses could have, because rent is the single biggest expense for almost everybody. Right, right. Regular ass people and businesses alike. Yeah. Um, and then obviously like salaries and stuff, if mm-hmm. you're talking about businesses. But, mm-hmm. um, but if a business is closed and they still have to pay rent or like me in my apartment still have to pay rent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they could have done that. And it's like one lever, right. it's one lever that could have moved right. and they didn't do it. Why? Cause folks want to make sure they're still making the money. Mm-hmm. The right people. Isn't the it? right people are still making right people quote unquote, still exactly. making, still making the money. Right. So, so there is that piece where I'm like, let's be careful in the language we use and how we talk about these things and where, where we're deciding the blame lies. Right. 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 Absolutely. Okay. I want to take a kind of hard pivot to, right. We just zoom to the left. Martisa got other stuff she wants to talk about. <laughs> I, have, I have a whole list. I have a whole list. Um, because for me, building the imagine, imagination of what freedom looks like has a lot to do with queerness. And this is another thing that you and I talk about. So I want to like dig into a little bit around queer identity and how that um, helps us imagine a different, a different reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do you want, where do you want me to be in that? Where do you want me to start? <laughs> Like you, Where do you want you, me to start? You want to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I will say, I think I'll start it here for the sake of argument. Um, I am 38 years old. It is 2020. Mm-hmm. I realized uh, that I was not straight in 2015. Mm-hmm. So that makes me 30. I was 33 when I figured that out. Uh, I got to do the math. Thank God things like have years on them, right? Because otherwise, goodness. Um, people are like, how old are you? I'm like, I don't know. Um, so, 
and and that in and of itself is is sort of an interesting what have you because um i grew up really conservative i grew up um, both catholic and southern baptist which is a really interesting way to live your life um <laughs> and um i always just felt broken mm. i um didn't know that I was queer when I was young. There are people now who are like, really? <laughs> you didn't know this? Um, but I didn't. I just thought I wasn't a very good straight girl. Um, that I didn't care about, you know, boys and other stuff in the same way that other people did. Right. Um, and in that way, that's sort of really removed mm-hmm. um, and not immediate. Um, in that way that like a lot of young queer women still have like posters of dudes on their walls who are like completely unattainable, right? Um, that you can like Leonardo DiCaprio at, in Titanic when you're 16. Right. Um, and that it's not the same as like liking men. Um, and, but I will say, you know, the Google started <laughs> the google in, the google i was gonna say the internet but google started in 1998 mm-hmm. right so like i didn't use google until i went to college right um so there wasn't the same sort of internet conversation the way that there is now and so mm-hmm. um for me growing up um without queer family and friends i didn't have anything other than the media yeah um and so, and in the media, at least back then, it was very much that you just always knew. You had like a bolt from the sky. Mm. Um, and because I didn't have a bolt from the sky, I must not be queer, right? So, um, and it wasn't until I ended up in an internet space in like 2015 where there was a lot more conversation about heteronormativity, which heteronormativity for folks who don't know is just basically like the big mood is straight until proven otherwise. Right. Right. That everything is meant to be straight, that you're supposed to be straight, that, you know, what have you, it's just the sort of um, societal culture piece that says everyone is straight until they come out. Right. Um, That's heteronormativity. Um, That things like heteronormativity are real, um, that there were other people in the world who, like, didn't have a bolt from the sky, Mm -hmm. who didn't, you know, that it didn't sort of fit into this box. Um, And I will also say I remember being about 14 or in 94, so 13, 14, um, which was kind of the height of the AIDS crisis, like in the media, um, where it sort of crossed over where you had characters with AIDS on television. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember as a kid growing up in deeply religious places, being told that that's what people deserved. Right. And I remember thinking that wasn't right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that that couldn't be true. Um, and so, you know, I remember being a 13, 14 year old kid going to the body shop <laughs> and there was a little bracelet there that the, the proceeds went to AIDS research and, um, and it said until there's a cure. Mm-hmm. And I remember I wore that bracelet for a very, very long time, long before I like knew what I was in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of things that, you know, are true for me 
before I knew what I was. Um, I've always been a supporter of like gay marriage. Um, I don't super believe in marriage anymore, but I do believe that people should be able to make their own choices. Um, And um, so there's things when you look back, you're like, oh, you you, you sure? (laughs) You didn't? You didn't? No. Um, uh, But the big thing is just I felt broken. And then I got in this space in 2015 and I was like, oh, maybe I'm not. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe, maybe there's something else. And so I, um, got married, uh, to a dude <laughs> in Important. 20, in 2014. <laughs> so when I was having this sort of, uh, epiphany in 2015, it didn't super matter because right. I was married to a dude and I wasn't going to like, um, I wasn't going to do anything about that. Um, and then, um, in 2016, we got divorced, um, not necessarily because of that, but just because um, we didn't work as two people in relationship together mm-hmm. um, in in marriage relationship. Right. Um, Bill and I are still very, very good friends. Um, and uh, we stayed friends <laughs> because one, we like valued each other, but two, we both had come from sort of, I came from nasty divorce, as you may remember from a very long, you know, long time ago now, but, um, I didn't want that to be my life. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to be what was true for me. I didn't want to have to be like, oh, I hate him now. Um, because I don't, right. (laughs) Things, things cannot work. And I cannot hate you. Um, so 2016, got divorced. Um, when I was like, oh, I might, if I were dating other people, I'd date whoever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the beginning of 2017, I got to this place where I was like, oh, I want to date women mm-hmm. in the broadest, the broadest sense, um, non-binary folks as well but mm-hmm. not dudes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and when that became true for me, it like clicked mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way where I was like, Oh, that's, that's accurate. Right. That's accurate for me. Um, and that's why I felt broken for so long mm. is that I was trying to do this thing when that wasn't me. Um, yeah. and it wasn't. And so now, um, when people meet me, they're more surprised that I was married to a dude, um, <laughs> than anything, than anything else. Um, and I will say Bill is one of the first people that I came out to when I figured that part out. Right. Um, and he, and I told him, I was like, I like girls. And he goes, that's just one more thing we have in common. <laughs> And that was it, right? And he's been um, one of my, like, biggest supporters since, um, which is really important to me. So, like, in terms of queerness as a way to imagine the the rest, um, I think there are more discussions of the way people can be in relationships in response to queerness um, than there are, you know, when we talk about polyamory, when we talk about... um, you know, ways that people 
relationships that don't necessarily have to be intimate, but that can be romantic or what have you. There's a lot more ways of thinking about that um, versus in a really heteronormative space. Um, To me, it's always about like procreation. It's very like Noah's Ark two by two. We're here to uh, populate the world. Right. Right. And so, so there is that notion of like, well, women owe their husbands sex. <laughs> women owe their husbands babies. And that all comes from a very specific place, right? And, and it's queerness that says like, I'm not, I, I'm not sure like we, like we owe each other to be humans. Right. But beyond that, I'm not sure what we owe each other. Like it doesn't have that same piece to it. Yes, yes, yeah. I love that because I think not only does it it say like we can imagine different structures for our relationships or no structure at all, there can be expansiveness. But queerness in the queer gender space and in the sexuality space says also I can be expansive. My desire can be expansive. My identity can be expansive. It doesn't have to live in a four by four box, you know? Like it can be more than what I've been expected to be. And um, I really, I find it fascinating. Like I find it fascinating that that's a way that we can see the world outside of what we've known. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the piece too I think that's uh that I love about your story specifically in being like okay I have this history of coming from divorced family and now I'm in a relationship realizing that I'm ready for a divorce both being brave enough to be like okay I'm going to do what it is that feels right in my soul And I'm not going to do away with this human that I love. Like that, I think, not only takes courage, but it takes an imagination for the future, for your own future. That's not what we've been taught. Mm -hmm. Like uncoupling, not being in relationships have to look like, can look like. And not even what you were modeled, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a beautiful, a beautiful progression. (laughs) And I think, what it what it is to me is just this notion of like we can make different choices in our relationships like we're building a new world in our relationships on the regular so like when we choose to be accountable to each other we are building something better when Mm -hmm. we choose not to dispose of people we are building something better yeah right yeah um and you know, there's a book called The Power Manual by Cindy Suarez. Um, and she talks about how power exists in relationships mm. that like laws, et cetera, et cetera, are artifacts of power, mm-hmm. but that it's really in our relationships and the way we interact on the regular um, that is where the, where we have a chance to make different choices. Right. Right. So 
Where for you, because I know you frame your work with getting your needs met more in the space of white supremacy, but I'm kind of interested, do you see any intersections with your queerness and with your own like stepping into um, saying like, I mean, because it to me, you saying like, okay, this relationship isn't going to work. I need to step into this identity. I need to come out as gay to my people. Um, you're, you're saying like, I have needs. I have needs to be in relationship in this way. And so I'm interested to know, again, I've like thrown you so many questions that were like weren't on the, <laughs> weren't on the list. <laughs> but like, what, does that inform the getting your needs met at work, getting your needs met in general? Does that inform your work in any way? Um, I would say like it does in the sense of it informs the vast majority of like who I am and what I do. Um, I will actually say that one of the things that informed, um, the idea that like I could have needs at all, um, was being a gambling addict. Mm. Um, and because again, there's a whole lot of folks who believe they're not allowed to have needs, not allowed to have needs at all. Abolition tells us otherwise. Um, but the first time I actually came face to face with it um, was being a gambling addict. Mm. And um, how I handled that is that I left, I used to live in Las Vegas and I stopped living in Las Vegas <laughs> and I moved to somewhere where it wasn't just big it wasn't everywhere um but i also realized i couldn't watch movies with gambling in it um and i couldn't watch uh people gambling on tv um which seems like uh something that would be easy but apparently not um but i had this moment where i was going back to las vegas um for a trade show um that i had to go to for work mm-hmm. And it was the first time where I reached out to the folks in my life um, saying, I need help and here's what I need. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what I did, um, this is very Liz, like to a T, (laughs) I took a page in a notebook. I was going to be there for four days. I charted out hour slots every hour for four days. Wow. And I asked my friends to slot into one of those slots. Ah. Because I knew I was going to need somebody mm-hmm. at different moments because Vegas is a 24 hour town, right? So right. it might be three o'clock in the morning <laughs> where I can call, you know, WhatsApp with my friend who's in Belgium, mm. who's like, I got you. Right. And, um, and so what that meant was, and Bill was again, like on my side in this one, this was after we were divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, when I, cause Vegas is structured. So you're kind of always having to walk past gambling tables and stuff, right? There's kind of, there's really no way not to. Gotcha. Um, and so that's just a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I would call Bill, um, or my mom, um, when I was walking through the casino, mm. And being like, just talk to me till I get to the other side. Um, and they were, they were more than willing. It wasn't a space that was like, why do you need that? Right. 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 There was no, there was nothing, none of that from anyone that I loved. 
It was just, how can I support you? Yes, I will slot in. Right. Um, and so that was the first time that I, um, that would have been 2017 as well. That was the first time that I, um, let myself, um, ask for help from other people, um, in that, in that kind of way, because so much of, um, my sort of whatever was that if I need help, no one will like me. I'm the one that helps, you know, I'm the one that you call in a crisis, right? Like, and if, if I am the one in crisis, no one will want to be my friend. Oh yeah. Um, no one will love me. Right. I can't mm-hmm. have needs and be loved at yeah. the same time. Ooh, yeah. Um, and so that was the first time. And what was interesting about that is that I didn't have trouble. I didn't have to use half the people that I uh, needed. Obviously I called the folks when I was like walking, but I didn't have that like overarching, I need to be down in the casino at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with having made that plan in advance. Um, and what I know now about brain science is that if you make a plan, your brain actually thinks you're doing it. Ah. (laughs) Like it's the same sort of, it cuts the same paths as if you're actually doing it. Right. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I lobby so hard in the work that I do around making a plan to get your needs met. Because then when you get asked the question, you know, Mm -hmm. because lots and lots and lots of people don't think they're allowed to have needs. And if they're allowed to have needs at home, they're not allowed to have needs at work. Right, right. Talk to me a little bit more about your work and getting needs met and how that, how that undermines white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start from the place that says white supremacy culture is what tells us we can't have needs, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think about... Um, Think about white supremacy culture. Think about the things that white supremacy culture builds. And I, I tend to think of like Henry Ford, right. Mm. Who, which you and I are both um, from Michigan. Um, Martise is from Detroit. I'm from outside Detroit. Um, And, um, and so Henry Ford is sort of a big, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a big deal. deal, Right. Um, and so if you think about that sort of Henry Ford, both from an assembly line place that says, you don't have needs, you're just <laughs> putting in the- you're putting a thing in another thing and you're right. moving the whatever, right? right you're moving right. the whatever. Um, and you are only good as far as you can move the whatever. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if your hand is tired or whatever it doesn't matter any none of those things matter and the the secondary thing about henry ford is also his desire to make everyone american right he's the one that did this sort of melting pot nonsense that says you come in italian american and you leave american so like Mm. he's he's responsible for like a sort of whiteness Mm, mm -hmm. also that that notion of like a lot of white folks um, are divorced from their 
the culture that they were born into because of that sort of like, we're going to now all be white. Yeah. The whitewashing. Yes. The whitewashing. Right. Um, anyway, so Henry Ford, um, says we can't have needs. White, white supremacy culture says we cannot have needs. There's, uh, Tema Okun, um, wrote about the characteristics of white supremacy culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is a really great, article um i'm assuming that you're gonna give like show notes and stuff for folks i will Um, have so many so so we will link them to it um but she writes about 15 characteristics they're things like perfectionism that there's only one right way Mm. um individualism um quality uh quantity over quality worship of the written word there's all these things that play into white supremacy culture um, that also tell us we have to fit in small boxes and people in small boxes can't have needs. Right. Right. And so to me, um, my work is around helping people name their needs and create space for that at work. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. because the more we are creating space um, for individual needs, the more we are, we can also be creating space for the needs of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and mind you, there is a thread of human who could say, well, I'm just going to name mine and it doesn't matter what yours are. And right. I will say that thread of human is missing the point. <laughs> um, but I do believe that people who think they can't have needs don't usually think other people can have needs. Right. Right. And so it starts with going, yeah, you're actually allowed to be a whole complex human. Please also recognize that I can be a complex human. Um, And I think there's a big piece in it for me in the way that I try to do my work, which is to say, we are not seeing things the same way. And I think the trap that white folks get into because of our history, Mm -hmm. because in every ounce of education, we have been told the world revolves around us. Right. (laughs) Right. Like it's a big, like if you get to a 38 year old person, Mm -hmm. you've had a lot of, a lot of the world, you know, all of your media has white people in it. Your book's got white people in it. Your TV's got white people, right? Your entire life. History has white people in it. Yes. Like not just in it, but like owning it, right? Has white people owning it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to say someone else's worldview is just as valid as mine Mm -hmm. is undermining white supremacy culture to say like, Oh, I don't think we're having the same experience because like what happens, white people will say, well, the police don't impact me. Yes. No shit, Sherlock. They're not (laughs) supposed like they weren't meant to impact you. Right. right? Right. And so I, so to me, some of that work is getting people to go, oh, we need to have the conversation about what this looks like for you. Right, right. And, and I do think that happens on, like, 
I do think that happens on an individual basis. Like, yes, structurally, we need to do a lot of work around a lot of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if like a work culture imagines that everyone is having the same experience, you're already wrong. Right. You're already missing it. You're already missing it. And so you can begin to change that culture when you realize that we're not having the same experience. Right. And that, you know, you look at what, um, there's a graphic on Instagram um, that is talking about like diversity and inclusion. And it's a um, pyramid that has little uh, humanoid shapes. Mm. Uh, and then they have their, they have colors mm-hmm. and it's white, 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 white. <laughs> and then <laughs> you've got other colors down here. Right. But that like, they're not in higher positions right? in that, um, in any organization, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in any organization. And so what does that do? It's like, we go back to when we talk about school, mm-hmm. what is the impact of not having black teachers? Yes. Yeah. For black folks, what is the impact of not having black bosses, mm-hmm. black mentors in that culture? And and I think some of it comes from the idea of saying, oh, well, we're all having the same experience. So a white woman can mentor a black woman just as well. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so breaking out of that says, wait. We all have a different perspective. We've got a different perspective and learning from people, being mentored by people, um, which, you know, in my work is always, um, I am always trying to get better at making sure I'm holding space um, appropriately for for black and brown folks Mm -hmm. and also recognizing that like when you and I talk about ancestral healing, mm-hmm. that's not a thing you learn from a white person, right? Mm-mm. Like there's all sorts of um, sacred traditions that have been co-opted mm. by white folks, that's right? That's a whole nother podcast. That's <laughs> a whole nother podcast. I mean, that's sort of your point, right? right. Of your whole thing. But there's these sacred traditions. Yeah. And white folks don't have any business teaching those those pieces, and so there there is a piece for me. I don't te- there's not, I don't teach sacred traditions. I teach stretch of the imagination, um, but there is a piece for me that wants to say, um, I believe that a lot of my work is helping white folks figure this stuff out and holding space for that. Um, And I don't want to say that people of color can't benefit from naming your needs at work. Right. You can. Mm -hmm. Um, But like what it looks like in terms of learning from me versus learning from somebody else. and there's some really, really, there are just fantastic educators uh, to learn from um, 
who I have learned a great deal from um, in terms of boundary work. Um, Bunny Mack, Bunny Mackenzie Mack is one of the best there is. Mm-hmm. Um, Desiree Attaway talks about, again, whiteness at work um, is another um, person that I've learned a whole, whole, whole lot from. Um, those are two of the ones that I adore. Um, there are others as well. Yeah. So. No, absolutely have those in the, in the show notes so people can mm-hmm. dive deep. Mm-hmm. So I want to wrap us up here because mm-hmm. we've been chatting and we could chat for another multiple hours. Forever. <laughs> as we do. Um, but in this moment of revolution, mm-hmm. what is lighting you up the most? Mm-hmm. Um, this moment of revolution is, right? Um, so... I have said to some folks, like, it feels like the world caught up with my life's work, right? (laughs) Because like, like I said, this is, it's not a checklist. It's not a like, boom, 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 we're done. This is a, we do this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, you know, the modern abolition movement uh, that centers itself around care and community and what that looks like. Right. is exciting. I will tell you the conversations I'm having with people around defunding the police oh, yes. are exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say to the other white folks, be having those conversations, even in places you think you can't, mm-hmm. because I have had them in ways that I did not dream was possible because the, there is a crack <laughs> in the universe Mm-hmm. And and there are folks who are afraid of the notion of defunding the police yeah. um, because it is so, so ingrained, particularly for white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, although let's not, let's be clear. I know people of every color who defend the police. Every color. Every color. And so like, don't be white folks just because you know someone who is black who is for the police does not mean <laughs> that we should right. not defund the police right? right um but those conversations where i'm having those conversations with people is really asking folks and again there's the three kinds of people in my life so i'm talking about the sort of ones that are not already here for defunding the police mm-hmm. um what I am asking is for folks to really deeply think about what keeps them safe. Ah. And is, is it really the police? I'm also asking folks to think about the difference between being policed ah. and, and having police available to you. Right. Because Ooh, those yeah. are two, those are two different concepts, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm asking people to do that. And then for that sort of middle, middle ground folks who have just realized that racism is a problem and who are willing to say, and, and I don't mean that in a judgy way. I really, really don't because um, like the movement needs everybody. Everyone, everyone. And white folks even... Like, if you've been in it for a while, we we already late. We're already late to this party. So, yeah, like, yeah, let's that. get doing the work and, like, 
not live in this super shame place that says like, oh my God, I should have been doing it earlier. Right. Um, but also don't, <laughs> don't make our black friends hold that for us mm-hmm. because like, yes, we should have been doing it earlier. That's true facts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, so that middle folks who are now willing to say black lives matter. What I am saying to people is if you are willing to say black lives matter, then we need to be willing to say defund the police. Yes. Like Black yes. Lives Matter, if that's all you're going to say at this moment, mind mm-hmm. you, I'm here for people saying Black Lives Matter loud right. and proud right. in a right. moment, right? right. Um, but if that's all we're going to say, then that's empty. Yes. And we need it to not be empty. Mm-hmm. And there's lots and lots of ways um, to get involved with defunding the police. One of the ways that I think, um, a whole lot of folks can get on in board on board with is look at your, um, school district. LAUSD has a giant contract with police. Uh, There are police in schools, one in four people that have, that are arrested by the police in a school are in elementary school. Right. And they're often because a child is having some sort of like mental issue and the teachers are overwhelmed because they don't have the resources because they don't have the money. Right. Um, But there are schools that have no counselors, but have police officers. Mm -hmm. And so look into your local school district and see what their relationship with the police is, because that's one of the ways one of the ways to be like, we should not be policing children. Right. Right. We should not be policing children. Um, and then, and deeply, deeply, deeply reflect on what actually makes us safe. Um, because if you dig in it, we'll find it's not the police. Right. 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 Yeah. I love that call to action. That was a perfect way to end. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so for much. having me. I love you so much. <laughs> I love you a lot. <laughs> I will uh, talk to you soon. All right. This episode was just packed with information and some incredible little nuggets. So I hope that you feel a little bit more enlightened, a little bit more educated, a little bit more revved up to make the world better. Um, And in the spirit of making the world better, please check out the resources in the show notes where you can support the family of Daniel Prude, support the shift that Rochester, New York is going through, um, and support the organizers that are on the ground, the people that are on the ground, um, really demanding the changes that is necessary um, to heal our city and our country. So um, we'll be back next week. I look forward to talking to you then. Have an incredible, incredible week. Bye.